0: Are you ready to explore life's possibilities? Go from ordinary to extraordinary. Then it's time to live limitless. To live limitless. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 20 of the Live Limitless podcast. And joining us on the show today is Sam Hunter of huntersdesignstudio.com. And we're going to be talking about turning a passion into a business. Now, Sam's story is pretty cool. And actually, she was just featured in Bored for This, a new book by Chris Gullaboo. And that's because Sam went from a 25-year career in IT to a full-time quilt pattern designer, fiber artist, and entrepreneur. It's a pretty incredible story. And ever since she was a child, she wanted to be an artist. I mean, she started sewing at age 7. She started quilting at the age of 20. But, you know, after peer pressure and whatnot, she was encouraged to choose a more quote-unquote stable career, which is what led her to getting a degree in engineering and getting into the field of IT. Although Sam certainly doesn't regret her IT experience. I mean, she is a single mother and it did pay the bills. She still longed for that life of an artist. And then at the humble age of 40, she went back to school and earned a B.A. in sculpture and an M.F.A. in fiber arts. And that's when the magic started happening. After noticing that many quilting patterns were poorly designed, and after some encouragement from a friend, she started designing her own patterns. One thing led to another, and after a bold move cold calling a distributor, she was in business. But it didn't stop there. After talking with many uh, beginning quilters, she learned that all of the beginning patterns— were typically basic and boring. So then she found her niche by designing patterns that looked complicated, but weren't that difficult for a beginner to emulate. And in her first three years, she sold 15,000 patterns and hasn't looked back. So it's a pretty incredible story. We talk about a lot lot of things, how Sam got started as an artist, how she started her business, as well as her first big win. We talk a lot about art in general and the devaluation of handcrafts and how artists really shouldn't sell themselves shorts uh or sorry sell themselves short uh we talk a lot about the world domination summit and the importance of finding your tribe the journey from the corporate world to entrepreneurship a lot of advice for those wanting to make a big change in their lives as well and a whole lot more so i really hope you enjoy this episode i don't want to keep you any longer and i know i say this every time but if you do like this podcast please leave me a review in itunes uh, that would mean the world to me. And if you do want to see any of the show notes and the links and all that kind of stuff, just head on over to LiveLimitless.net and find the Sam Hunter interview there. And if you want to to visit Sam, it's www.huntersdesignstudio.com. Hey, how's it going? Hey, hey. And how are you doing today?
1: I'm I'm full bore ahead for Monday.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Are you still keeping up with the, like, traditional schedule, like the Monday to Friday?
1: No, be- I worked all weekend.
0: <laughs> okay. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> so I, um, I'm in the middle of one of my busiest seasons, so I, I work until it's done. Yeah,
0: fair enough. I know a lot of entrepreneurship is all over the place, but sometimes I hear people that still try to do the whole nine to three or something like that. If they can.
1: Yeah. I think, I think I like the idea of taking the weekends off because that's when most of the people that I can hang out with are taking their time off. Mm -hmm. Um, so it probably makes better sense. But the reality is I don't think that I go a single day without working in some capacity or other, Fair even if it's only just triaging a little email, um, making sure I don't have a customer that's struggling with something. um, those kinds of things. True.
0: Is it all run by you still, or do you have any like virtual assistants or anything?
1: I have a little bit of help, but not on that kind of stuff. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Not on that kind of stuff. Um, uh, The help that I have is more, uh, you know, take this task off my hands and get it done and hand it back to me. I still write all my own words. um, Although I don't handle my own Pinterest account anymore. Um, And I still am the first point of contact for any customer service issues um, or requests or anything like that. It's not, it's not big enough um, to hand it out to anybody else. Um, one of the things I really like about working for myself is I can decide to spend a half an hour really making somebody happy mm-hmm. if That's I want
0: to. That's a good wanted.
1: point. Uh, yeah. Um so yeah and then sometimes that's necessary. Um I design quilt patterns, so a lot of the people I deal with um usually in a customer service way is one-on-one somebody contacting me because they can't figure something out. Um and sometimes it's uh an older lady who has very little comfort with technology. And she's buying a PDF because she doesn't want to pay for postage because she's saving a couple bucks. And yet the the concept of getting it downloaded and printed is way over her head. <laughs> and you know, I I step in and I help.
0: Awesome. Yeah, well that's a good point. It's like I read uh Do you know Derek Cybers? Have you heard I, of him?
1: I do know that name, yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, he was he was like I mean his claim to fame he was a cd baby so he was the guy that started cd baby and sold it for 22 million Uh, i guess he donated all that money Mm -hmm. to music and now he he just wrote a book but his look on entrepreneurship is way different than most people look at entrepreneurship whereas he says like pretty much it's your chance to create the universe you want yeah in a way so you don't if you know if you if you don't care about making the millions and having the ipos and all that stuff that a lot of entrepreneurs think of you don't have to do that like you don't have to grow that's not a rule it's all up to you
1: no and I, i i think i always admire when um you know people make a thing and that thing gets popular and then of course the push is to make lots of those things um with the assumption that volume would also equal a lower price point, which would create more volume, which would create, you know, whatever kind of a growth pattern. And I, I always think it's really interesting to see people who go, but, 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 but wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to be in charge of that. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> you know, I got out of that. I got out of that particular hamster wheel and I'm not really anxious to repeat it. Um, and I'll be the first to say, you know, I don't do what I do for, you know, I do it for money. I wouldn't do it for free.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, But having said that, um, I don't know how much you know about quilting, but in our universe at the moment, there's a bit of a kerfuffle going on. Um, Quilting has always sort of been the craft. um, It's always been the craft of women. The fiber arts usually are. Most of the handcrafts end up in the realm of women um, frequently, and, uh, because of that, there's, they're devalued in a lot of ways, you know, like this painting that's only real purpose is to create beauty has a lot more intrinsic value in, in terms of sort of navigating the gallery system right. and all that kind of stuff than a handcrafted item does. Um, and like any of the arts, there's also that, that bit of pushback of like, well, wait a minute. You love what you do. And somewhere in the middle of that, there's an underwritten, but then why should we pay you for it? Because you love it. Um, To which I always say, I know a lot of stockbrokers who love their jobs too, and they don't have any problem taking home a lot of money. Um, But the other thing that's happened in waves within um, quilting as a craft industry um, is every time technology has touched the industry in some way, There's been sort of a Luddite backlash to that technology in some way. The first major hurdle was uh, sort of at the end of the 80s uh, when machine quilting came to a big rise and the quilts were becoming artistic and they were becoming that fine art product that would go on the wall and not necessarily be a functional product and we had a backlash from a lot of older members who sort of came at it with, well, you know, my grandma did it by hand, so that's the only way it would get done. Um, to which people like me, and I was much more much more of a young whippersnapper at that point than I am now, uh, if my grandmother had had an electric sewing machine, <laughs> you bet she would have used it. <laughs> um, and we've got a thing going on right now. Uh, something came up uh, like five years ago, a new sort of concept in quilting arose and it's called modern quilting. And it has a lot of its aesthetics sort of based in um, mid-century modern type, uh, the sparse aesthetic and the negative space aesthetic and all of that kind of stuff. And it was perpetuated by an internet generation. It started on Flickr. Um, And uh, it was quickly corralled and incorporated and turned into a nonprofit with a board um, and they frequently come out and try to define um, define it very heavily, uh, what it is. And um, one of the things that I found sort of in the middle of being told to define my art is, but you don't, you don't get to tell me how I make my art. Also, in this sort of definition, they're, they're definitely branding. And branding is just a huge thing that we're dealing with now is that people are the brand and the brand is the thing and the logo and the graphics and the visual, you know, the visual collateral is all part of the thing. And what I realized is, you know, in my interpretation, they're very much about protecting a definition of a brand. Um, And one could say, I have a brand. I have a look to my products. I have a style that I like to write. Um, I have a way that I interact with people, but I actually think I'm in a service industry. I actually think that what I do is offer service, and the service that I offer is I write patterns for people who want to keep having fun making
0: stuff. Mm. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, and it's pretty hard to judge art. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, it's just it's so subjective. <laughs> you
1: can't get you can't get near it. You can't get near it. Uh, I mean, we've all had that experience. You go through an art fair or thing, and you look, you look at it, and you go, oh, "That's lovely. That's lovely. That's lovely. That's icky. That's icky. That's icky." And then you hit the piece where it's like, "Oh my god, I have got to mortgage myself <laughs> and to take that thing home and live with it for the rest of my life." And we've all had that experience. And that's the only time when art actually adds up like math. It's the one of the art and the one of you making making the equation. Um, the rest of the time, it's just just funky math. You know, it's just like, you no, know, it's nice. It's okay. Yeah, it's a good point. So, or my kindergartner it, or, you know, whatever those things are. But then every now and then a piece grabs you and I'm like, you have to own that thing, you know, or you regret not owning it. Yeah. I and mean, I've had a few of those, the ones that got away. Um, so, yeah, and, and I do believe that that has value. I do believe that that level of passion is worth the price.
0: Yeah, me too. And I think that's, it's like a lot of people say the value of something is what someone's willing to pay for it. I- Absolutely,
1: unfortunately, with the handcrafts, we just uh, I'm, as makers we need to we need to be really a lot better at mm. counting uh, you know we, with with what I do quilting it 's somewhat easy to say it takes this much material and that many hours to make a thing um, it doesn't really account for the fact that I can make the thing quickly because i 've been doing it for thirty years. Mm. Um, Because oftentimes people say, well, how long did that take you? And I say, oh, it took me 20 hours, but it took me 25 years to learn how to do it in 20 hours. Um, That isn't often part of the equation, but we don't do a very good job of knowing what the time and materials, just just the broad time and materials, swipe of the aspect of the work that we make is. Um, And then we don't do a very good job of educating our buying public as to why this handcrafted object is a very different thing than the thing that you're going to pick up in Walmart or Target or Crate and Barrel. Um, and a lot of people have never met a handcrafted thing they they don't know about the passion that creates a handcrafted item and i think that us as the makers i think we're in charge of that education
0: yeah exactly i think i think part of the reason too is like we're so used to manufactured goods these days right Yeah, and they, yeah. They're, they're becoming so cheap and so commoditized
1: yeah yeah well you know it started you know in the post-war years we had this big you know machine that was making bombers and then we had to figure out something else to do with it um so we made manufacturing stuff right we started manufacturing same with food i mean you know we had a food industry that was making rations and then they started making tv dinners <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah and now you're starting to see art come out in food yeah <laughs> and then
1: you know we have we have a, this slower backlash to crafted product you know craft food craft beer craft wine okay. I, I mean i eat craft chocolate. Um, uh, you know, we, we have this, this, this trend back to, well, but I don't want the same hamburger that everybody else can have. I want this hamburger that's, that's got a lot more thought about what, you know, thought about what's going into the meat, thought about what's going into the process of making the meat, thought about what's going into what's on top of it. Mm -hmm. Not everybody wants a slice of American cheese. I mean, some of us would like a little goat cheese in there. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, um, so i think I think we're becoming um, we're definitely becoming well i would say the middle class the, the the people who have the time and the money to be interested in other things than survival um i think are beginning to see the handcraft in in all ways rise again
0: yeah, and I can't remember where I read it, but they even talked about how how going forward with like robots taking over a lot of uh, a lot of tasks for us that Quite often, probably the the only thing we'll eventually be able to offer is the experience, like something that a robot can't do.
1: I think so okay. I, because I I really think these days anybody can make a thing. You know, you can make a widget for a price. You mm-hmm. know, and ultimately, if you're making if you're making your widget relatively competitively, we're all dealing with the same price for that widget. But the thing that does distinguish you is the way you treat people. Is their experience in dealing with you and your widget?
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: You know, and I, 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 think that those experiences are what define us. I, I know personally, um, I'll pay a little more to have a have a good time uh, with with a product or w- with an industry that I care about, or you know, with a, with an outfit that treats me kindly. Yeah, um, I,
0: I think that's actually what Apple did, right, with the computer. <laughs> I think,
1: uh, that, and I think the, uh, I think the iPhone, a lot of it. I was a long time, long time, long time PC person. I came up in the IT industry before we actually had Windows. I was working on machines that had MS DOS on them. Okay. Um, so I've come all the way through everything that you can do with Windows as a computer professional. Um, and then I bought an iPhone. And then the next time I needed to upgrade my computer, I bought a Mac. Um, and I, I remember saying to the guy as I was laying down, "My thousand bucks for this." computer after buying a lot of dell refurbs um i said did you realize holding my phone at him that this is a gateway drug to owning the rest of your stuff and he just smiled <laughs> <laughs> i said thank you very much my iphone is heroin i appreciate this
0: so yeah it's very true yeah so i might as well um <clears throat> i missed out on uh, on just introducing you to the show <laughs> We just got into the conversation, but it was really good. So I'd like to keep everything. Uh, oh, that's fine. So I'll just say, welcome to the Live Limitless show. Um, Thank you for joining me.
1: I'm I'm really excited to talk to
0: you. Yeah, I was excited to hear your story. I knew World Domination Summit would be a good place to find uh, some cool stories. So. Yeah, we're
1: we're we're a bunch we're a bunch of weirdos,
0: you know. All right. Was this your first one? Were you at the last one?
1: Two. Um, I attended 2014. Okay. Uh, I uh, was on the periphery of the volunteer staff of 2015 and I was very embedded in the volunteer staff of 2016. Okay. I found out about it in 2013 when I was living in Southern California and I did not have the time or the money to get to it and was watching it longingly from afar. Um, and uh, moved, actually moved to Portland in 14, so there was no excuse not to go, especially when you know, I had a bed 20 minutes away that I didn't have to pay extra for. Uh, So yeah, it was really exciting. The part about the world domination summit that's been really great for me is the extraneous community of WDS, um, in Portland, specifically the Portland family. Um, occasionally we get called the Portland mafia. We prefer family. Um, is that where you're living (laughs) though? Yeah, I I live in Beaverton. Um, I, uh, because there was a really strong outside-of-the-Summit family here in Portland, I connected to those people when I first moved here. I moved up here in a December, and a couple days later, Chris Dilbo dropped a, an email about his local Christmas party, and I, I thought, okay – you know, put on your high heels and his wife of mascara and, and, and grab your nerve and go meet some of these people. And I, I went to the party not knowing a soul. I didn't know anybody in Portland, let alone, you know, at the party. And I met um, a guy that headed for a while the local group here. And he's, he's sort of a great connector. He knows the people who knows the people. And I started going to the pub nights that he was setting up. And suddenly I found myself in the midst of this Portland family of WDS types and entrepreneurial types, um, which has become more than half of my my social family here in Portland. And it was a really great way to sort of connect to the town in a very different way, because as an entrepreneur, I don't go to a job, make my friends at the job, make my friends talking about Game of Thrones at the water cooler, kind of that thing. I, I live a, I live a pretty solitary existence in a lot of ways, other than when I choose to step out of the house. Mm-hmm. When I step yeah. out of the house, the WDS community was here.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, that's one of the things. I actually kind of sometimes wish I lived in Portland. It's just, like it's such a cool city in many ways.
1: Yeah, but, until it get, until you get the $100 a month rent, rent raise.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, like up here, it's uh, pretty expensive as well, so it's hard to... Not sure what it's down in Portland, but
1: yeah, I just I just got handed an, an extra hundred bucks a month for a very small apartment out in All the right. suburbs. Yeah, so we'll 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 see if I have to move further out to to um, keep making other choices. Fair enough.
0: How far is Beaverton?
1: Um, depending on the traffic, it's it's a snap to get downtown, or it's a real pain. in the between. You know, it can okay. go either way. And Portland, I mean, I moved away from Los Angeles thinking, "Yay, no traffic. And Portland in the rush hour is, is really quite breathtaking. Um, they haven't expanded to their size. And I, I don't know that they can. A lot of the roads, you know, have bridges on them. And I, I, widening bridges is I, 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 apparently not an easy thing. Um, but um, they keep building a lot of stuff in Portland. Uh, designed for people who want to stay very nuclear in in a neighborhood, but um, and they keep building it without parking. There's no there's no statutes on, you know, you plant an apartment building you don't have in LA you actually have to put an underground parking lot underneath it. Um, and in Portland you don't. And they say, well these are all people who are gonna stay in the community and use public transport and, and stay on their bicycles, but but they actually all still bring their Subarus with them. So um we're we're running into some real space crunch in town um and that spills out to you know being able to function anywhere around town
0: Ah, yeah that's too bad and it wouldn't have been that hard to put underground parking probably (laughs) at the beginning
1: no but you know if you're a developer you're not going to sink the cost into that unless someone you know holds you to it
0: so sure so just to give people a a background on who you are maybe i'll just ask uh, like where you're at now or maybe even why you got featured in chris's book born for this (laughs) (laughs)
1: Wow, getting featured in Chris's book was just really lovely. He put a call out, just like you, for stories of people who've made the transition from a corporate life to um, a gig that's a little truer to their soul. And uh, I wrote him, and we ended up having a lovely Skype conversation, just like you and I are having. And um, he turned that into a story um, in Born for This. And one of the things that he pulled through the story is that even though I've walked away from an IT career, Um, I've done a lot of different jobs in IT from hotline technical support before it was the kind of thing that got outsourced onto scripts. I've did done a lot of quality assurance work. I've done a lot of work that was about the quality assurance of user interface and user experience before we actually called it that. Um, I've done a lot of training. Um, Most recently, I worked for Deloitte & Touche's Tax Arm, the IT division of their tax arm. We were making tax software that plays tax scenarios for people. Um, Taxes isn't one plus one equals two. Taxes is what do you want it to equal? Um, And there are different ways for you to, you know, run your numbers through based on different points of law um, and have those numbers come out in different ways. And those different ways can benefit you and depending on other factors. And we, we made software that ran those scenarios. I worked for Kaiser Permanente, the big medical company when they were, getting away from their electronic medical system, uh, medical record system, um, and uh, going to Epic's medical record system. Um, and basically we needed to sort of sunset bunches of different Kaiser systems and bolt them onto the Epic product in order to function. Um, so I was working for them in project management. So, you know, I've done a lot of stuff in the computer world. And all the, all the way through... Um, what Chris pointed out is that the things that have always mattered to me is customer experience and quality um, and getting things right. And one of the things that I, I feel that I do bring to I'm a quote pattern designer now, um, I think that the customer experience still matters to me greatly. I do care about it being right. Um, I do care about delivering a quality product. And I actually started writing patterns because I was frustrated with the quality of the patterns that I was buying. Um, that, and I came out of graduate school with an MFA in fiber arts, thinking that I would get to be a college professor, but I did that in 2010 when nobody was getting a job. Um, and, uh, I turned to, uh, you know, my background in quilting sort of as a last act of desperation in, in a lot of ways, and then, uh, found out that, um, I love doing it. So, uh, there, there are no accidents in here. There are no accidents. And I think, That's the thread that Chris pulls for a lot of people within his book is that if you reach back into our lives and you look at what mattered to us no matter what and what we cared about no matter what, that when you find that happy place going forward, those things are still there.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a good point. How long were you in the corporate world before making the leap? (laughs)
1: Um, I left the corporate world in 2006. So I I was 45 years old. I always wanted to be an artist. It was the first thing I ever knew that I wanted to be when I was six years old. um, I I came of age in the limit of um, what I call fast frame cartoons, where we went from the really laborious things that were created by Disney to the things that were created by Hanna Barbera, where you know you really only had three postures to you know indicate that a, a critter was walking or something oh, like yeah. that. Um, but there was just an a, there was a, an amazing amount of fun and color and wordplay and and humor concepts and and all of that kind of stuff. And I used to sit down and redraw the Sunday funnies, and I was avidly glued to the Saturday cartoons like any kid of that age. And I remember. Our first color television being delivered when uh, I think it was something like the Wacky Races or the Monkeys were on and uh, being you know desperate to watch my shows and wanting this TV repair installation dude out of the way. Um, and it was a lot about words and color for me, which is what has in the end what comes out of my artistic career. As a fine artist, I play with words. Um, I, the book that I've written for the quilting industry has to do uh, – I created a, a pattern, uh, a set of patterns that is a lettering font that you can use to make words on things. Um, so, again, you know, if you pull the threads going backwards, I've always been interested in pop culture. A lot of the projects in my book had to do with um, uh, puns on language, on um, uh, like make it so from Star Trek, but SEW because we're we're people who right. sew. Um, there was one quilt that definitely had to do with the I love you, I know from Star Wars, and um, you know all of these sort of pop culture references um, that have to do with that sort of DNA of what I was interested in as a kid. And I didn't go into arts as a teenager because um, I was in Britain. My I'm British. My folks were British. I've just been in the United States a really long time, and I don't sound it much anymore. Um, and, uh, in the seventies, Britain went through a, a really, really horrendous time financially. And, uh, you know, I pop up in my teen years and say, I'm going to be an artist. And my parents said, no, you're not, <laughs> that is not available to you. Um, and I didn't jump the hurdles that they put up, uh, but it was always there. I, I started working my first tech jobs and on the weekends I was painting t-shirts to sell to people for food money. And, um, When my son was uh, a baby, I worked part-time decorating cakes and I got into quilting when he was a toddler and uh, quickly became um, adept enough at it to start teaching it. Um, And in my early 30s, I went back to school after getting a degree in electronic engineering I went back to school and started working my way through art degrees and I got my AA. I went back at 30 for an AA. I went back at 40 for a BA. And at the end of the BA years, so I went for a master's. I went for an MFA.
0: So, so, what, so, so was it, so pretty much for the better part of your life, it was a, like a side hustle or a, like a, a hobby, a passion? Hobby,
1: definitely okay. hobby, yeah. definitely passion, uh, definitely the thing that turned me on. Um, I did I did a long stretch of single mother, motherdom, so okay. uh, your choices uh, contract quite a bit when you're doing that because mm-hmm. the first choice you make is to keep the food and the roof running. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, I, I hit a point when my son was about 12 that I really thought that I would turn into being a professional within the quilting industry and get on the Speak, speaking and teaching circuit. And then I, I looked at my 12 year old and I went, how do, how do I, how do I do this? Um, how do I travel, um, and not be available? How do I raise my child? How do I, uh, you know, consistently make payments on things when the the money isn't consistent mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point I kept going in it you know, I, I have no complaints about it. It's paid me well. It's fed me well. And there's so many things about my IT career that I still use. I mean, my comfort with software, with technology, um, that all plays into the way that I write what I do. I, I know a lot of people, they write patterns that they have to hire out how it gets done. Um, I know how to get around InDesign and Illustrator. Um, uh, you know there's just so so much I haven't designed my own websites. my first one was WordPress. I got some help when I tuned it up. Um, I got some help when I implemented a shopping cart uh, but you know once it's all once it's all in and running, I can pretty much manage it. I can't code it, but I can find my way around in it um, and I understand how it operates so it's not a foreign concept to me you know where to go looking for the right property for something within software isn't isn't something that gives me
0: a case of the sweats. Um, so that's really helpful. And that definitely helps. And was it IT mm-hmm. that brought you over to the U S? Yes,
1: uh, it... no, no, it was a family immigration. Okay. And, family immigration.
0: and what inspired the transition eventually from the corporate world to the, to the, having your own business?
1: Um, part of it was, I just sort of had a sense of now or never. Um, I had finished my bachelor's and, uh, a couple of my professors had said to me, uh, you know, if you want to, you have what it would take to go higher if you want to. Um, and I've never really had anybody give me that level of confidence in my artistic ability. Um, and so I looked really hard at that and it, it took a couple of years of preparation. The first time I applied to grad school, I, I wasn't I wasn't presenting a coherent picture of who I was. Um, And of course I wasn't accepted by anybody. Um, And when I sort of knuckled down and really sort of streamlined the conversation that I wanted to be having through my art and with my art, um, I had more success in being chosen for school. Um, And at that point my son was grown and he was launched. And, um, you know, I lived in a condo that was worth a half a million dollars and, And everything was rosy in 2007. And by the time I came out of grad school, um, the economy had tanked. Uh, My house was completely upside down. Um, I had actually had a heart attack while I was in school. I found out I have some genetic health problems that needed to be managed. Um, And, uh, you know, and then coming out of school with all of that, um, it's sort of a health crisis of any description, um, even, even if it's a health crisis, you observe in other people, it can do a lot to really, really refine you. Um, and I came out of grad school heading towards 50, having had a heart attack, you know, with a, a, a significant chunk of my capabilities now no longer available for play. Um, because uh, energetically and physically there are things I can no longer do. And, um, I had an opportunity actually after grad school when I wasn't getting hired for any teaching jobs uh, to go back to the tech job I'd had at Kaiser. I mean, they, they came looking, ah, we understand you're out of school and your job's open, you want to back? And, and I, I had a really tough day of thinking about it and I just went, I can't, I can't, I can't go through what I've just gone through for three years to achieve this higher level of education and understanding. You know, not only the education Um, On the understanding that is given to you as a student, you know, or or I would probably say actually fire hosed at you as a student. Um, And, uh, you know, certainly in the arts, you have a lot of make it bigger, make it smaller, make it pink, make it blue. You have a lot of people who are telling you how to make your thing. And somehow you have to come out of that with a voice that you believe in. that That doesn't matter if everybody else doesn't believe in it. Um that I found out a lot of things about me as an artist while I did that, and I just thought that if I go back back to technology, what was the fight for um, and uh fortunately, I was uh given an opportunity to stay with a friend um and that 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 put you up for a few months actually turned into a really long time um, and she allowed me to sort of work my rent off by helping her out in a lot of different ways um but Uh, At the end, what emerged was this idea that I would write quilt patterns, I got a book contract, I launched a business, I got on the speaking circuit within my industry, and I managed to change directions. Um, I'm not for a single minute of any given day do I regret going through um, the tough times of grad school and the tough times of getting started in order to have it. But it's also one of those things that doesn't really get afforded to you unless either you're sitting on, you know, a well-saved pot of gold before you go into it, or you have the support from people who care that you get to where you want to go to in some way. I mean, I, I had a place to live. I was given a small studio in a friend's studio. Um, and this friend, his studio is really his fortress of solitude as he calls it. And, uh, and he gave me a corner of it um, which isn't really good for the way he works, but it sort of saved me and allowed me to work, and it actually allowed me to start my business and uh, write my book. Uh, so, that you know, there was a lot given to me in order to make it do. This idea that you can just sort of quit your job and be passionate and it will all come to you, um, I think we do a lot of disservice to people by giving them that. It takes a lot of sort of preparation, and it takes um, – A really, really, really big jump out of the airplane to to go for it, especially with something like technology backing you up, because you can step out of tech for a year and you can be out of date. Right. You can be completely out of date in a very big hurry. Um, And our industry, the technology industry, any industry at the moment is not being kind to people of a certain age. And I'm of that certain age. I'm north of 50. Um, And there's ageism is rampant in technology. There was a great New York Times article, um, I think September 3rd, about ageism in tech that's going on in in the Bay Area. Um, So to to sidestep technology when you're anything other than young is a very risky proposition because the chances of you being able to come back to it really, really hard. Um,
0: I didn't know that here. I I first heard about that from um, my wife's from Mexico City. And she uh-huh. has an uncle that used to work in IT in some fashion. I'm not sure yeah. which way, but I'm not sure w- what happened there. But now that he's in his fifties, like yep. he, you can't find work anywhere. Right. I mean, uh, so I, I thought it was just maybe a, a Mexico thing, but yeah. it's no,
1: it's, it's happening everywhere. It's just really happening everywhere. Um, and, you know, it's unkinder to women than it is to men. It, it always has been, you know, we're, we're supposed to be the everything, you know, we're we're supposed to be beautiful and and young and we're supposed to be good to look at, but not confrontational, but very, very talented and, you know, completely competent, but you know, don't create waves. I mean, it's just that, that, sorry, that's a way feminist tack on that, but it's very true. Um, And as a woman in technology, I mean, I've been out of tech for 10 years and I'm North of 50, nobody would hire me. It doesn't matter that what I used to do was project management, um, which thank goodness I learned how to do that because, boy, do I have to manage myself now. Um, But, you know, project management isn't a skill that necessarily ages. It, it, It doesn't really have anything to do with the current amount of technology at all. In fact, somebody who solved a lot of project management issues would probably be a really good hire, but it's not really considered that. Right.
0: And, and i and i also i definitely agree with the the, the quitting your job cold turkey sure. <laughs> and going into business as being usually bad advice and uh i i definitely i like that there's a bit of a transition now to getting people to start a side hustle oh instead, yeah instead which for, is i mean it's also sure. hard depending on you know if you have a family and a job but even yeah. even if even if you could find an hour or to a day
1: yeah
0: <clears throat> to get something started
1: uh I got my, um, I did my AA, um, when I was married and had a lot of flexibility with my schedule. Uh, but my bachelor's, I went back to school with a full-time job and, uh, you know, and chunked away at it a little piece at a time. And the arts, uh, you know, the homework in the arts is huge. Uh, I mean, homework in general is huge, but homework in the arts is huge because you have to make things. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of socializing I didn't do in order to do this, um, and you know, then, then I you know threw it all up in the air to go to grad school. And oh, I remember, <laughs> I was in Virginia. I was t- talking to my father, and, and I remember him saying, "You know, why haven't you gone to see this Civil War battlefield or that Amish country quilting people farms or something?" And I remember at the time, uh, you know, um, I color my hair and and. You know, the evidence of what the true color was, was very, very evident at that point. Um, you know, my my toenails were too long. And I, I mean, I just remember saying to him, I don't have time for personal grooming. Where am I going to go see, uh, you know, the Civil War battlefields when I can barely keep up with my homework and feeding myself? Um, and that's unfortunately, sometimes that's what it takes is that sort of level of um and for me that was what it took at the end. You know, to get the MFA, it took quitting everything and giving it my entire attention after really going through my life, working and working on a degree and parenting my son and you know really being the queen of juggling balls for a really long time. When I chose to do grad school, I chose to do it in an all or nothing way. Um, so that I could really immerse myself in the experience and hopefully get the absolute best out of that experience that I could. Uh, but it's not, you know, again, it's not really um, something that's always available to you, and sometimes it's not something, you know, those big moves don't have to happen till the end. I mean, I think Chris's book is fabulous for talking about how you establish the side hustle while looking at the values that matter to you the most. The other book that I would highly recommend is Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, because um, she talks about why on earth would you ask your art to support you financially before your art even knows what it is? Right. And I, I think that's a really valuable conversation to have with people, because this, you know, throw it up in the air and it's all going to work out. If you're really stressed about how you're going to feed yourself, you're not going to make good anything.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's just going to cause more stress
1: yeah or you start taking gigs that are about the money and not about the work
0: that's true as well yeah yeah and it even comes yeah. to play with a lot of things i mean like even how you mentioned uh, well there's always an opportunity cost and yes. even in my case i left i think after one of uh, the four-hour work week and a bunch of, of books that i read that inspired me more so to travel so yes. i left for like the better part of four or five years yeah. And I'm not in tech, so it's not in that way. But even in the business world, I just think in corporates in general, they don't like to see like a five-year blank. Um, <laughs> and they really don't well, like to see you having your own business because oftentimes I was using my own. Uh, in that in that time, I had started some blogging and a, a business online, but that's also not usually looked very favorably from, from a corporate standpoint. Yeah, it,
1: it's interesting because you know, now that you talk about it, it's like the corporate structure expects us to be the sort of the cradle to grave employee that we used to be in the fifties, you know, where you started your job in the mail room and you worked your way up through the this and the that and the this and the that, and maybe you made it to one of the, the top executive positions and you knew that you were going to have a nice retirement. You know, you were going to retire well, you got a gold watch, people appreciated your contribution. Your contribution mattered. You weren't always considered the first guy on the chopping block because you were expensive. Um, And now we have a culture that is based on a much more nimble way of doing business where we're constantly assessing what works, what doesn't, where's the fat, where can we trim it? And the fat that we trim are experienced people. um, And we don't offer them that 30-year golden handshake in terms of retirement anymore at all. I mean, nobody, nobody will take a job today that they expect to still be at that company in 30 years. I mean, it, that those jobs just don't exist in today's market, but we're still acting like the employees should be loyal to us in that way. Right. that's yeah, interesting. you know, it, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way.
0: And then in, in terms of your, just getting back to the business. Um,
1: yeah.
0: So you said uh, you got a lot of help in that way when you got started with it. And then how did you first get started? Like, how did you, what was the... Did you already have the idea for the business as, as bringing it online, or basically how did you get started, and, and, well, uh, and what was your start, first win?
1: You got it. I had started quilting in the late 1980s, and uh, I very quickly became passionate about it. I had sewed as a child. I, I grew up sewing. I sewed with my mom. I sewed with my grandma's. Um, one grandma in particular was the grandma that I got parked with a lot as a teenager. When my parents wanted to go away or do something for the weekend, I got sent over to grandma's house and she and I would sit and sew. So I sort of came up, uh, you know, with my hands in sewing in a very sort of old traditional way of it being the woman crafts that are handed down through the women folk of the family. Um, when I came to quilting, um, I had been a very avid, uh, cross stitch and embroidery person. Um, and suddenly I realized that 20 hours on a piece of cross stitch would make this little thing on the wall and 20 hours on a quilt would cover a bed. And, um, it wasn't just really, a sort of a time, time versus money or size of product thing. There's something about quilting that I think appeals to a lot of people in that there's something very tactile about it. Uh, a lot of us have an affinity for touching interesting surface. Um, uh, it's like a material memory. Uh, like you know we we remember touching things that were soft or or not liking to touch things that were scratchy or or all of those kinds of things and most quilts are very very comforting and loving and they they're built to be so and i made my first quilt and i just took off making them um, and within a couple of years i was teaching teaching it as a hobby um, and i was chunking my way through my various different art degrees uh, at my aa i thought i was a watercolorist at my ba i was working in sculpture um, but even when I was playing with sculpture, I was still really fiddling around with fabric a lot. Um, and so I came out of grad school and I applied to every job, every job in the United States that I thought I was remotely qualified for and didn't even get a phone call, which was really weird because in it, I'd never really had tr- any trouble getting a job or holding onto it. Um, and, uh, I ended up working in a quilt store, uh, just cause I knew the people that owned it and I was desperate to earn something. And they took me on a couple days a week. And I was making a, a quilt pattern, one that I had bought. I was making a store sample so that I could teach it in the store. And I remember sitting down with a girlfriend of mine and, and this pattern was not well-written. And I was just grumbling about it. Um, grumbling being a very mild word for what was coming out of my <laughs> mouth. But, uh, and I remember my girlfriend saying to me, well, why don't you write your own? And I just looked at her and I said, Oh, get real. And she said, no, you get real. Nobody's hiring you. You're good at this. Why aren't you writing your own? And so if we were going to call an inciting incident, there was that one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I started dabbling in it and I made a few patterns and, um, I got them into the local shops. The people that knew me as a teacher were willing to carry them. So I was selling a few here and there. And, at the time, uh, the way to get a toehold in the quilting industry was going to this industry event called Quilt Market. It happens twice a year. Uh, the October version, which is coming up, is in Houston. The other one sort of travels around the country. And, and what you were told is you have to go to Quilt Market, you have to have a booth, and you have to sort of toil in this booth until some distributor noticed that you exist. And uh, so I was trying to work my way up to such a thing, and. I, um, had an opportunity to be a vendor at a big quilt show in Southern California and Long Beach. And I actually kickstarted to get the help with that and did this vending at the show. Well, at that show, um, a couple of people popped by the booth, noticed what I was doing, Facebooked it, blogged it. I, I, you know, this was, what was it? 2011. Um, I had a website. That's about all I can say about it. Um, and from that, uh, these images went across the Internet, and someone came back to me, an acquisitions editor, at one of the big book publishers came back to me and said, "We, well, you did this thing, and we're interested in a book about that. And one of my products got into the hands of a woman whose daughter worked at another distributorship, and that distributor contacted me and said, we're really interested in this product that you're making. What else do you have? And there was my relationship with distributors. And as it turns out, you don't have to go to quilt market and toil and hope to be noticed. You can actually reach out to these distributors and say, hey, I do this thing. I've got the stuff. Are you interested in taking a look at it? And that's the way I got all the major U.S. distributors. Uh, so I think there's there's what people tell you is the truth, and then there's what is the truth. And I think as long as you're being respectful, I don't think it ever hurts to ask to say, Hey, I've got this thing. You want to look at it? Can can I get you to look at it? Um, and boy, I, I would have to tell you that I, I, am one of these people that sort of label myself as very much an ambivert. I need all my introversion time to manage my extroversion moments and to go out there and say, Hey, I've got this thing. Would you look at it? Can I sell it to you? Um, has been just the most terrifying thing that I've had to get used to doing. And now I'm at the point where I realize that if I don't ask the answer is no. And if I do ask, I now have a chance of a yes.
0: Yeah, that's true. Just like three years ago, I took a a door to door sales job and I did it more. Like I'm also, I don't know if I'm an introvert. I'm definitely not an outro. I guess I'm in the middle maybe, but I definitely don't feel comfortable going door to door. Like it was like a, my you know my chest would get really tight and and everything like that and i thought oh my god but i i I mostly did it as a personal development thing to see if i could do it and and it ended up being well but that was one of the biggest challenges is like you can't let a a no get you down because you're gonna hear probably a hundred in the night yes and you know that eventually you'll hit the one or two that you need but it's uh i noticed that the biggest way people fail is, is to let the no really get to them yeah, and then it's over because once you get in a bad mood, then it's it's the well, end. Well, and
1: fear fear of the no is crippling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I, I, you know, as Monty Python used to say, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, truly, <laughs> of all the things I've gotten up to, nobody has yet called up a firing squad.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's 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 like people being afraid of public speaking. It's yeah. terrifying, but there's not really, you know, there's not actually a threat involved. Mm-mm.
1: Mm-mm. <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that's really how it happened. And, and then, you know, from there, distributors sold my products to quilt stores. I started also selling direct online. Um, I've got, I'm about to release, I've got 43 active patterns right now, uh, which is a pretty big catalog. Um, not all of them are still alive. I mean, I can keep them alive. I do small print runs, but, um, uh, you know, some of them are, you know, some of my early ones are still very successful and, you know, some of, some of them just aren't, you know, they, they wax and they wane and then they've had their season and we all move on to the next newest, brightest, shiniest object. Uh, so creatively I have to keep on my toes. I have to keep making new things. Um, the difficult part with the creativity is you have to keep your eyes on the trends while not staring too hard at them. So you don't pollute your head with other people's ideas. Right. And I think that's a, a definitely a delicate line to wiggle, you know, wiggle down at times. Uh, So, um, I've had my stuff plagiarized and had to go after people with a C and D, which was, um, a really unpleasant experience. Uh, but I also write for my industry in terms about managing our worth and claiming our worth and, and respecting ourselves and, and learning how to say no to people who want to just give us exposure. Uh, you know, my refrain being always you can die of exposure. Um, and, uh, you know, really trying to get my industry as a group to start looking at what we do as having a lot of value. And that uh, giving it away for free just teaches people that none of us have value. Um, so that it, it, it's a step up that I think we all need to be taking together in a lot of ways uh, you know what i'm up against is people who do it as a hobbyist they've retired they have income from another stream and they go well it's okay if i give it away for free i don't need the money and it it's like but i do yeah
0: exactly it's a big <laughs> and, problem in in the writing world as well yes, yes you know, especially yes because yes. it uh it devalues everyone it's, it's kind of exactly. like someone selling a, a house on a street for half below the value yes. And it kind of makes everything else look look worse as well, but I, I, for me it's as like as a writer and even a photographer, I find the the copying issue has always been my biggest fear of releasing stuff, but it's also something I guess you just have to have to deal with
1: i I have um, a sort of a longer view of it. This particular plagiarism was very, very blatant. Mm-hmm. Um, she basically took my pattern, ran it through a thesaurus or the equivalent of a thesaurus, added one feature to it and, and then called it her own. And there's a, there's this misbegotten idea within the arts that if you change five things, you can, you can own it now. You know, you take someone's concept and you wiggle five things about it and now it's yours. And, um, and, uh, I, I think we can all do better than that. I think if you have to hide behind the nits and nats of copyright law to justify your actions, you know you're being a slime ball. Right. <laughs> um, I actually think that she wasn't intending at all uh, to be nefarious or any of those things. Um, I think she was unfortunately ignorant of what it takes to truly write a pattern from scratch. And ignorant in the fact that she's bought this malarkey about, you know, you can just change a few things. There's an artist. I want to say it's Chuck Close. It might be Chip Kidd. I don't know where this quote comes from, but I remember having it written down somewhere for a lot of my life. And it, it it might even be Andy Warhol. and, And it basically, the quote was, you have more to worry about when they stop copying you.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think, that that's in some ways a better way to look at it. It's like, okay, this person wants to rip off my work. I'm doing good work. I'm here for the long haul. Uh, I'm getting a reputation for being the kind of person that delivers this kind of product. I'm just going to keep doing that because, frankly, you know, cream rises and manure sinks after a while. It just does. Um, That said, a poorly written pattern can still become very, very popular. Um, So I think it's important when it's a very blatant issue, um, like the issue that's going on out there with Zara copying a lot of uh, enamel pin artists, indie pin artists. Um, I think when that kind of a thing happens, when a company that has ample opportunity to license the product from the original artist just blatantly steals from them and, you know, basically, you know, go suck it because we're bigger than you. I think, uh, I think that's when that's when you dig in and you fight. For sure. And I and I really hope that the group of people that are getting ripped off have got someone behind them to help them with that fight. Also with social media, I think you've got to be really careful what you get up to because it takes nothing for you to get a lot of bad press. That's true. Um, and the bad press can get really nasty and really hateful because lord knows the trolls love to find a new dog pile to pile up on.
0: <laughs> so in the like I don't know anything about the quilting business. So when you find a distributor and they have it in a store. Is someone? Is it? Is it people that kind of make their own quilts at home that buy your your yeah. design, or yeah. is it like a manufacturing company as well that might?
1: Um, in in my world, the pattern is kind of like a coloring book. Okay. So I give you the directions to cut your fabric out and put it into all of the holes in the coloring book. Okay. Okay. So usually it is sold at the one-on-one level to a customer. A customer wants, they they see my pattern, they go, that's pretty, I want to make one of those. I'm going to go buy the fabric. Um, They don't usually buy the fabric that I've used. A lot of people like to make the picture that they see. A lot of people like the concept of the picture, and then they go buy their own colors for it. Um, I have not licensed a pattern at a manufacturing level to anybody like Crank & Barrel or any of those people. Um, I haven't looked into it, frankly. Uh, fabric companies also buy patterns. Uh, oftentimes when a new fabric line comes out, a free pattern will accompany it. And those patterns are usually purchased from designers. Sometimes the designers are so Twitter paid to get to work with a fabric company that they offer them for free. I'd like them to stop doing that. Um, and uh, oftentimes people create patterns that are offered to publications. A lot of magazine publishing goes on. You get your foot in the door by writing a pattern for a magazine. You get paid two or $300 for that pattern, and the magazine publishes it. Um, we've had some issues with publishing rights. A lot of magazines now want to keep the rights in perpetuity. Um, a lot of the boilerplate contracts have that. It used to be that your rights would revert back to you after a certain time, and then you could go forth and do what you wanted to with the pattern. Um so there's some contractual stuff going on there. There seems to be a thing going on in all contracting, like writing and anything where the people that you do it for want to own every part of it forever yeah. um, which is kind of hard for you you to be the intellectual property and they go, here's five dollars for that yeah, I know, right. so I actually don't write in those situations because even my poorest performing pattern is some better than two hundred dollars
0: yeah i mean that's that's only like a a day's work for people in in many yep. corporations. Right? And then, and now you also on your website you said you also offer some patterns for for people to buy, and then you also do workshops.
1: Yeah, know? I teach. I I teach and speak at guilds. Usually, a guild will hire me to come and do a lecture, and then keep me around for a day and let me teach people how to do things. Oftentimes, we take one of my patterns, and I lead people through how to make it. It might be a technique that. People uh, would prefer to have their hand held through or a product that they would like to have at the end of the day, like a handbag or something like that. And so I, I do a lot of that kind of teaching.
0: Okay. And then what? Um, how did you get introduced to like the World Domination Summit and, and those kind of people?
1: I don't remember how I found out about Chris.
0: <laughs>
1: just, you know, one day you find out about this thing and you find the blog and you start following it and then you read a couple of the books I read the hundred, I think I read the art of Nonconformity first. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I sort of felt like it was a tribe that I was waiting to find because in general you hang out with a bunch of people and, and people can be pretty grumbly about a bunch of stuff. And when you are hanging out with the entrepreneurial crowd, the WDS crowd, uh, another crowd, I hang out with the, uh, the, uh, good life project crowd. Right. Um, John Fields is gig. Um, Usually when you hang with these people, everybody's talking about this forward-looking thing, their next big idea. Uh, if they're frustrated, they're frustrated with a specific aspect of something that usually somebody knows someone who can help them out with it. Uh, so it's a, it's a really positive crowd to be around because everybody is trying to move forward into something, and usually the something that they're trying to move forward into is something that's really quite heart-centered or soul-centered in the way that they're approaching it. Uh, Whereas, you know, the corporate climb looks a little differently.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'm always amazed when I was in Portland and I asked if people would ask what I'm doing. And if I say world domination summit or Chris and they don't know who it is, I don't know, it just surprises me so much. I mean, I know it's not like a a movie star in a way, but just because you're in Portland, you would think everyone would know who Chris Gullaby is.
1: Well, especially after seven, seven summits, (laughs) seven summits where they take over the center of Portland for three days. You think like, haven't you noticed? Um, but again, I also think that the way we interact with information is so different and insular now. It's like, you know a lot about the information of the group that you interact with. Um, you know, if you're not now, getting your news in a local way or in, in in feeds that would expose you to more than the thing that you used to look at, uh, you're not going to see much about this. I mean, I have friends who live in the bub- suburbs out here in Portland and, and I don't think they've been downtown Portland in oh, probably a year and a half. You know, the last time I drugged them down there to go get ice cream kind of thing. And, um, you know,
0: what goes on in Portland just doesn't concern them. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I guess it would... It's like anywhere, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we live
0: in our own bubbles, right? True. And then in terms of, uh, I guess, is most of your marketing done then through the magazines and those kind of connections? Or do you also do like online marketing now or anything like that?
1: I don't do anything specific. I do uh, write a blog I'm not going to say sporadically, but I wouldn't say regularly either. I'm somewhere on the needle is in between those two. Um, I do have a robust mailing list, um, you know, from entrepreneur to entrepreneur, build your mailing list, build it early. doesn't matter if it's kind of weird and shaggy at first, just
0: build it. It's, um, it's still the most important piece, it seems like, right? Like a, for people who focus on social media, it's, it's, it's very, it's good social media, but if you put yeah. all your eggs in that basket and that company goes away. Yeah. Or they release some kind of rule that limits yes. you. It's, not, uh, yeah, it's yes. not good.
1: Yes. Quilting is a very visual medium. The fiber arts are a very visual medium. So we rely heavily on all the visual things, you know, Facebook with visuals. Instagram is huge for us. Um, a lot of people are on Twitter. I, I I don't really follow anybody on Twitter. You know, it's just, uh, to me, I don't know, it's like Twitter is like people shouting at each other for me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll have to change my mind about that. But, um, I, the, the, the emails that I subscribe to that I enjoy are ones that have a lot of, you know, very carefully crafted content, uh, you know, about their thing and curated content about other things. Those are the two things that I really enjoy when I read someone else's email. Marketing wise, most of my work goes through the distributors. So the distributors have sales reps taking, Images of my stuff out to their stores. Um, and then the next best thing I can do is, you know, really, really, really keep up my personal relationships when people interact with me. Um, a lot of people will send me pictures of the stuff that they've made of mine. Um, and I think it's really important to celebrate uh, the win that they have with that with them and be encouraging of their creation of that product. Uh, you know, because they they use my coloring book to make it. You know, they, they trusted me with the idea and usually this quilt is going it's made for a reason and that reason is usually a very heart heart centered reason. Um, so I, I, think it's, it's, it's an honor to be trusted with that relationship. And I think it's important to maintain it. Um, also I think your work has to speak for itself. I'm beginning to get a reputation, especially among our uh, beginning type quilters. I write really well for our beginners. Uh, of like if you make my pattern it's going to work out and it won't have been too hard for you and so you can trust me the next time you see one of my patterns that it's going to work out and it won't be too hard for you
0: right and that's a big thing to to build in the the trust factor right? yeah with anything it matters
1: matters. and i I talk about that with my audience especially in my newsletter i I say you know i do this because of you so tell me what you want and what what are are you looking for Mm -hmm. because i do Mm -hmm. this for you (laughs)
0: <laughs> well that's the other nice thing of having a, an email list you can actually ask them what they're expecting from you or, or what they'd they'd like you to release because i've heard a lot of podcasts lately or uh just people talking about that that method of asking them what they want and then producing something to that effect
1: yeah a lot a lot of the people that i listen to have been saying you know what do you want you want more content you want smaller bits of it do you want more pieces of it Do you want transcripts? Um, I actually like transcripts a lot. I prefer to read most of the time. Listening isn't built into my life easily. There's so much content out there I would love to be listening to. Uh, But at some point, um, I think, especially for makers, you have to decide to make and not consume.
0: Yeah, that's true. And actually, it's funny with me, actually, even when I started a blog, it's not something I didn't read a lot of blogs and the podcast. I I listened to a few but not many. And I would like to, but there's so many. And yeah. uh, I found myself, the only way I really can, can listen to them is uh, when driving. Yeah. I find that's yeah. a, a good way. But other than that, I also like to read more, and I don't watch a lot of videos, because I know videos are getting very popular. And, I don't care
1: if videos not my favorite method of consumption at all.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, because I like movies. And I yes. Show, but to be just consuming, like a, like even when I first did this podcast, I did the video energy, but I find it boring to watch an interview for a whole yeah, hour when you can just listen to it driving or something yeah, like that. So
1: yeah, definitely fun. definitely better to have that
0: audio aspect. So to for it. sure I don't think writing's going away. I don't think like writing's ever think, gonna go away. Yeah.
1: We're we're all too way turned on. I, I mean when you find something that's beautifully crafted in words, it's so lovely. Even if it's a topic you don't care about, the craft of writing is so beautiful. And we have a lot of people who are still doing it really, really well. Yeah.
0: And, uh, and even I, the ebook thing, like I still, I have ebooks, but I still love the physical book more.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I, have gone over to Kindle for anything that doesn't have imagery.
0: Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And unless it's a book that I think I'm going to, you know, take a highlighter to, because there's so many, you know, really beautiful things that I need to keep track of at that point, I'll go buy it in hardback and I'll deface it. Um, I keep it forever, uh, but most most of my passes, what I call throwaway books, books that I would read and give away to somebody else, those are all now electronic. Um, so,
0: so, in terms of uh, so it's really great. Like the I always like to when, whenever I, I meet people of of all ages. Like I think like one of the cool things about living in today's world is even though it's still difficult to start a business or do something different in terms of marketing and everything, but it's it's also the easiest time in history to do something i think that you so. want to do whether it's whether it's traveling or whether it's going back to school or starting a business or whatever it is even just a, a side hobby i just find there's so many ways to get involved now and do you for someone out there that's looking to make a, a change in their life like what kind of advice would you give
1: get well get curious and try a lot of stuff on uh, i think i think it's very difficult Uh, for us when we're young we're we're just not fully formed I mean as I say you know I'm north of 50 and I'm not fully formed Uh, so I think it's ridiculous for us to imagine that at 18 20 25 years old that we can know what our life's answer is some of us do uh, and some of us don't some of us just don't we have to go experiment with a lot of things I'm lucky in that I've always known art was the answer. I just didn't know how that was going to appear for me. And I've tried to walk away from art many, many times in my life because a lot of people try to convince me that art wasn't my answer. Um, I was a licensed massage therapist for a while. I actually went to Chinese medicine school for a year. Um, You know, I've tried on all of these different things, but I think it's really important to go try them on. Because I think in trying them on, either you find more reasons to be more deeply curious about them, or like with Chinese medicine school, absolutely fascinating, still fascinating to me. One of the great things about it is now that I'm somebody with a lot of health issues, I think it's made me um, a more proactive in my self-care. Who have gone through that school and now know what I seek in terms of a healthcare provider. Um, but I certainly won't go in my box going, God, I really wish I had tried X, because for the most part I have. I've gone and tried X. And I think you have to try. I think you just have to try. I mean, if you're curious about pottery, take class. You know, if you're if you're curious about uh, you know, I don't know, becoming a Cirque du Soleil gymnast, go figure out how it's done. And usually the first avenue is go find someone who's doing it, ask if you can have a half an hour of their time or a cup of coffee, be respectful when you approach that time, um, have a list of questions that you really want the answers to, and ask them what was the path? Because usually what you find is the the actual path to anything wasn't the path that you think it is.
0: And I think that's also something that's easier in today's world is is trying things because there's a even in person, but also online, there's just so many ways oh, to uh, YouTube yeah. videos and, yeah. and all kinds of ways to get started. And that, that's pretty much how I started experimenting with creative things was just, if I saw yeah. something that piqued my interest was just going out and doing it. And then every time you do it, you get more confidence in trying new things.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I think, I think you just have to remain curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Einstein said, you know, I'm not necessarily brilliant, but I am very, very curious. Um and you know, I think we could argue about the brilliance part, but obviously he was very curious. And I think curiosity is just like the first thread of anything. It's just like, well, I wonder how that works, or I wonder how you do that. And with today's ability to be connected, I mean you want you want to know how somebody learned how to drum a certain riff. If there's a way for you through social media, websites, whatever, to get a message to the drummer and say, Well, how did you learn how to drum that riff? Um, so I think it's I pretty think amazing, it's,
0: actually, how many people I, will just, like respond to you, yeah, even when they're semi-famous or famous. It's it's, yeah. it's it's amazing, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I I think we all I think we all want to be heard. I think we all want to be seen. And when you approach someone and say, "Hey, I hear you. I see you. How do you do your thing?" I'm I'm fascinated by that. I know I give those people my time.
0: And it's one of the – I was telling my wife the other day, there was a, a great piece that Tim, Tim Ferriss wrote in the 4-Hour Week about thinking big and how oftentimes it's actually easier to think big than to think small because everyone else is thinking small. So it's actually more crowded. Yeah. Anyways. Yes.
1: Seth Godin goes in, into places like that. There's another one. If you, if you want a daily dose of, oh, well, how to become better at what you do, Seth, Seth Godin's
0: Godin. newsletters. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I don't yeah. know how you write so much, but
1: <laughs> and so succinctly, I mean exactly. the guy gets it in four sentences where it take the rest of us three days For sure. you know?
0: <laughs> actually so. on, on that subject too like what what are some books or or it can be any other mediums of of inspiration, but what things have uh, inspired you along the way that you'd recommend along others along
1: the way, uh, uh well, big magic is is a current favorite uh, yeah. Liz Lizgil. Uh, One that I read was probably almost two years ago now. It's called Essentialism by Greg McKeown. Fascinating, fascinating book, probably one of the most impactful books I've ever read. read. Um, It talks not about how to get more done. A lot of productivity books are about how to streamline the things you do so you can do more of those things. And Essentialism is about clearing out the things you shouldn't be doing. And I I think I need to read it yearly uh, to get a really good reminder on that. Uh, And one of the the things that he says in there, um, and actually this chapter made me cry, uh, was he talked about your first asset is your body and that you have to take care of this body before this body can take care of anything else. And, you know, we hear that thing about, you know, put on your oxygen mask on you before you put it on your kid. Yeah. But, I mean, he really talks about if you're not nurturing and taking care of the health of the body, there are so many things that you're not going to be able to get done. Um, and being as I've lived, you know, with, with health crisis for uh, quite a few years now, um, this idea that my body has to come first all the time, uh, was something that I, I really had to get behind, and uh, he explained it in a really beautiful way. Um, so definitely essentialism. As far as learning how to work with your own time and yourself and your project planning, I can't say enough about Charlie Gilkey, Productive Flourishing. Um, one of these days he's going to write a book, and I, I'm going to look forward to reading it, but his project planning methodology uh, has certainly made my life more doable. And the best thing that it's done for me is helped me be very realistic about how I plan my time so that I wasn't always like trying to cram 24 hours of work into eight hours and come away not having got it done and then feeling like
0: a loser about it. Um, so, I think, I think yeah. I'll, I'll need to check him out.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a really, really, really strong one. Um, you know, there are a hundred really amazing books that anybody could – uh, talk to you about but from from terms of entrepreneurism i definitely like essentialism i i really like chris's born for this book and in terms of if that entrepreneurial idea has to do with the arts was gilbert okay gilbert the Big Big magic. magic yeah i think yeah. i heard
0: that on the last podcast i did with um she also commented on the world domination post um jennifer so yes. what about yes. uh, doing the she's doing the the homeless tour just say hello Yeah. So you probably, she also recommended that book.
1: Yeah. um, The audio book is lovely too, because Ms. Gilbert reads it.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. So it has, it has all of her inflection. You know, you're not reading it in your, your head. You're reading it in her voice um, with, with her emphasis and her way of explaining things. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, And it's, it's one of these reads, it's not a hard read at all, but it's a very profound one.
0: She's the one, She's also behind Eat, Pray, Love, right? Yes, okay. she is. I thought I recognized it. Yeah, Eat, name. Pray, Love was
1: her, was her big thing. Um, but but I actually think this one's going to be bigger.
0: All right, I'll definitely check it out because now I've heard it more than once. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you need two or three of us. Sure. Two or three of us. I would also put a plug in for Jonathan Fields' new book. I've read the first chapter, and I think it's going to be something else. It's called How to Live a Good Life. Um I I really liked his book, Uncertainty. It was about sort of getting used to the idea that you're never really going to have all the answers Um, and getting used to the idea that while you're trying to get the answers, you're going to thrash. You know, one of his favorite sayings is embrace the thrash. And I think you really have to get used to the idea of not really knowing where it's all going and going anyway. Just getting in the train anyway. You're not really sure where we're going to end up, but we're going to get in the train. Um, I think that's a really good one, but his new book about um, how to live a good life uh, has a lot more to do with sort of centering your soul to what you're working on, as far as I can pick up from that first chapter, and I'm really excited
0: to read the rest of it. Okay, I'll check that out for sure. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for for seeing me. That's been a great talk. It's been a really lovely talk.
1: Next time you come to WBS, come and find me.
0: Absolutely. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Your host, all right. Well, that's the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to learn more about Sam, head over to her website, which is huntersdesignstudios.com or head on over to livelimitless.net, find the Sam Hunter interview, and you'll see all the show notes as well as any links mentioned in the show and uh, and the links to her website as well. So I hope you enjoyed it and we'll uh, see you next week.